Hi, and welcome to School of Sports. This is a podcast produced by the Center for Sports Communication at Marist College, where we have a regular series of conversations with the people shaping sports media and PR. This is episode two, the James Tyler edition. I'm Leander Sharlockens, and co-hosting with me this time is Marco Schaden, a junior here at Marist College. Hi, Marco. Hi. I'm extremely depressed that the U.S. Men's National Team did not make the World Cup. You have been a little cranky about that Yeah, lately. it's not great. Sorry about the class. <laughs> Our guest is James Tyler, senior editor for ESPN FC, ESPN.com's soccer page. He's an Englishman, a Liverpool fan, a former colleague, and a friend of mine. But in spite of those obvious defects, he's managed to have a thriving career. But we'll get into that shortly. His Twitter handle is at James Tyler ESPN. James Tyler is a senior editor for ESPN FC. And ESPN FC is almost a separate website from ESPN than one you'll see from ESPN NBA, ESPN NFL. Uh, ESPN FC will have coverage on uh, MLS. They'll have coverage on the Premier League. They'll have coverage on Serie A, La Liga, Bundesliga. And they have prominent writers such as Jeffrey Carlisle and even have had our own Leander Sherlockins as a writer on their site. One, we're really happy to introduce James Tyler who let me know before we started recording that he was definitely going to be wearing pants for this podcast. Hi, James. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you doing? We're very well. We'd love to talk to you about your role at ESPN and in soccer coverage, and Marco's going to kick us off. How you doing, James? Perfect. Very well, thanks. How about yourself? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful Monday. Um, where you're from, you're from Liverpool, I just want to know, what's your background? How did you get to ESPN from another country, from almost a different world? How did you go from football to soccer? Um, well, I'll spare you a few of the biographical details. Um, I certainly didn't get to this in a conventional way. Um, I was originally working in book publishing when I moved to the States. Um, after I graduated from university over here, I moved to Manhattan to pursue a career as a book editor, and then people stopped reading books. So I sort of pivoted to the Internet, um, and I was able to sort of marry my soccer passion with my skills as, as an editor to sort of um, basically take ESPN soccer coverage, which when I started in 2011, um, as Leanna can attest, it, it was sort of a bit of a wild west um, just all around as far as soccer media in this country. Um, so since 2011, 2012, um, just been able to sort of help grow the coverage of ESPN and, and the, the wider soccer community from there, really. Uh, are you mostly an editor for ESPN, or do you write as well? Um, occasionally they slip up and let me write something, but for the most part I'm exclusively on the editorial side. Um, and by editorial, that means um, assigning stories, uh, handling the daily coverage, um, managing um, our front page coverage and, and mobile apps, so what you know people see when they first come to our site, and then coordinating things like match coverage, who goes to our games, what they do when they're at those games, and then sort of basically reacting to, you know, whatever's actually going on in the sport um, and, and coming up with an appropriate coverage plan for that stuff. But occasionally I get to write something, but normally it's uh, more tongue-in-cheek and not so much covered to uh, tie the day's events because uh, that certainly isn't my forte. 
James, are you aware that you just used the word pivot in a serious fashion? Double yes, I did, and I was hoping you would call me on that. I mean, I, <laughs> nothing, I'm, nothing I'm saying is serious, believe me. Uh, but yes, I did. I pivoted. Okay, just, just so we're really clear on that. Um, <laughs> so I, I remember at ESPN just before uh, you got there, uh, we, we overlapped briefly for a few months, but at the 2010 World Cup, we went with, I think it was seven writers and two or three editors, and that just blew people's minds. And, and I think ESPN deserves an awful lot of credit for how they've moved the boundaries in their soccer coverage. So how have you seen it evolve in the last six, seven years that you've been there? Well, I will say this. I mean, I think having a strong writer presence at games has always been a priority. Um, and that just goes for ESPN, not just in soccer, but in, in any sport that the, the, the company covers. They, they always want to have a, a lot of people at these games making sure that they cover all the angles. But as far as soccer specifically, I mean, there were, we had maybe three or four editors in 2012 um, for the Euros, which was the first tournament I remember covering for the, the soccer net, as it was then known. Um, and like you said, we had seven writers going to the 2010 World Cup. Now we have, um, I mean, we're just putting together our World Cup plans for 2018. We have, I think, 15 or 16 writers who will be moving around Russia um, in various patterns. And, I'm, and one of my jobs as a senior editor there um, is to basically coordinate their movements. Um, I'm, I'm putting together a coverage plan to sort of literally cover everything from where people fly to whether they're based in Russia, and then exactly what games are we going to from day to day, week to week. Um, they have three or four editors there to sort of coordinate on-the-ground coverage. Um, but then we also will have a, a blogger network of 32 um, writers covering each country specifically as well. So, you know, that, that in itself is a remarkable increase from 2010. But, you know, steadily through the years since I got there, we've been increasing, even, even as TV coverage is, is tailed off for ESPN on the soccer side, um, we are continuing to sort of flood the zone, to use an NFL term, um, in terms of you know playing the game um, online. Um, so we kind of buried the lead here. Um, what does the U.S. missing the World Cup actually mean uh, for this country? Um, you know, it, I think you'll depending on who you ask and, and sort of the role they play in soccer coverage in this country. I think you'll get uh, a variety of different answers. For me personally, I, I kind of find it more interesting and more challenging um, in terms of like keeping the average soccer fan in this country engaged. And we've already had some sort of pretty high-level heated meetings um, at ESPN, at least, as far as like how we're going to bridge that coverage gap and, and keep people excited. Um, personally, as somebody who came to this country and has seen, I mean, I, I moved here in 1999 and, and seeing the explosion in soccer fandom support, um, access to you know every live game written coverage um i think the game itself will be fine i think there will be certain players who will sort of miss out on that proverbial last hurrah you know the, the clint dempsey's will not get the sort of send-off that they may have been hoping for um but you know as far as guys like christian pulisic who continues to do brilliant things in the, in the bundesliga i don't think it'll be that fatal um but it certainly is a challenge for us to sort of come up with creative ways to cover the world cup that still keep the average fan entertained while you know obviously having to you know, we can't overlook the fact that the U.S. team won't be there. Um, but I personally think it'll be fine. Um, the, the coverage is already so much more litter than it was when I moved here, and, and certainly the uh, the knowledge of the average soccer fan that you see at bars or at games has increased exponentially, and there'll certainly be lots of things for them to look forward to and enjoy next summer, even without having you know, the likes of Pulisic to cheer on. 
how does it change your emphasis in your coverage, though? And and especially because this is the first World Cup in as long as I can remember in, in years that's not going to be on the air for ESPN. So I imagine that sort of changes priorities and maybe gives you a little bit more freedom. So between those two things, between being unshackled from the television uh, programming and not having to worry about the U.S., which kind of tends to dominate coverage in a way where it just kind of gobbles everything else up to a certain extent, how does that kind of change your approach? Have you guys had to sort of make some uh, some adjustments on the fly? Um, one thing we've certainly had to do and adjust is, um, you know, finding ways to still talk about U.S. soccer in 2018 without having the obvious structure of a World Cup and World Cup preparation to build around. Um, you know, there's going to be no shortage of stories involving both U.S. soccer players, uh, the, the hunt for new manager, the presidential elections. Um, all of these things will, will sort of keep fans engaged. Um, as far as bigger stories, I think a lot of soccer fans here, you know, while they obviously have their, their U.S. Um, fandom is pretty strong, but they're also, you know, equally as excited to see Neymar, uh, Messi, you know, Ronaldo, the, those kind of superstars. And, you know, the chance for has actually been, like you said, it's been a very freeing one. Um, we get to sort of think of interesting ways to, to cover the usual players, because obviously a lot of things have been written about Messi and Ronaldo and those, the, you know, that caliber of player. Um, so finding new ways to cover them, but also ways to keep people engaged in, um, you know, the smaller stories. I mean, Iceland being there is a, is a good one for us because it enables us to be more creative. And we've already got some good relationships there in terms of how we can cover that team. Um, so basically, we're going to be looking for uh, teams, managers, players, personalities that will sort of resonate with a U.S. soccer fan and then trying to sort of push people to, to get interested in those stories. Um, not having it on TV is actually a lot easier because, you know, your coverage tends to be on autopilot. When you have TV coverage, you, you sort of put your highlights up, you have your player ratings, and, you know, here's who did what in what game. And while we'll still have a, a fair amount of that at the 2018 World Cup, we are certainly going to be pushing the boundaries in terms of how we present these things. Um, you know, we're still trying to figure out how, how to work without having ready-made highlights for games, for example, as, as a non-rights only. Um, and also just to, to give people all the coverage that they're not going to get from watching the game. Because I think a lot of our competitors in the space are going to be focusing on video. Um, but, you know, we're, we're going to have a lot more advantage in terms of written resources and, and online resources, social media, um, to sort of, you know, keep our numbers strong and, and also give people coverage that they deserve, given the U.S. aren't going to be there. You know, it's still a huge tournament and interest will still be sky high. So, uh, you know, I don't see any trouble there. What do you think the implications are for the larger soccer media in the U.S.? Because the way the cycle has sort of gone traditionally is that right before World Cup, a lot of outlets would sort of suddenly wake up and go, oh, soccer. Um, and, you know, there, there'd be kind of this flood of money coming in where all of a sudden, um, you know, people are getting hired left and right. And then, you know, for the next three years, there's kind of contraction, contraction, contraction. And then there's this big investment again. Um, do you think that'll be affected? How do you think this this plays out for the industry, the U.S. not being at the World Cup? I think that is certainly more disastrous. I mean, you know, fans will have no shortage of coverage to, to sort of scan and, and, and watch from day to day. But, you know, that is that is the machine. I mean, our industry in general is, is contracting and shrinking and you know, media organizations are pairing up and sharing content and splitting revenues and sort of finding ways to, to partner up in this this crazy landscape, um, you know, as far as ESPN, you know, as FC is concerned, we'll certainly be trying to, you know, 
we, we will need people to, to continue writing to keep covering these games in these, these countries, but it is certainly an unfortunate consequence. I mean, so many media companies are just moving away from worlds altogether, um, and now without a World Cup, that is obviously a significant chunk of uh, you know really talented writers and, and soccer experts who are not going to have as much to do this summer, and that is a problem. Um, I'm not really sure how we address it other than to continue to keep our coverage high, but it's, it's definitely... Um, a major issue and something that is going to be unfortunate as I sort of see the, the tournament roll around. The U.S. soccer presidency election is coming up. Um, what does this election mean for the, large, the larger soccer industry when there has it hasn't been contested in a very long time now? I'm not quite convinced yet um, based on the candidates that continue to put themselves forward. I think there are about 15 people a day stepping forward and saying they're going to be <laughs> Uh, contesting the race in February. I'm still not convinced as to what the actual ramification is going to be for the average soccer fan or indeed the sport in this country. I mean, part of what made Sunil Galati so good for U.S. soccer um, since he started there was the fact that he, you know, created these big structures that can sort of run themselves. And I think the challenge for anyone outside of him and outside of his framework is going to be trying to reverse those in any kind of meaningful sense, if it's even possible. Um, but I'm really not convinced that the average soccer fan or soccer player, you know, or, or soccer dad, soccer parent who has like a 12 or 13 year old talent rising through like AYSL, I'm still not really convinced as to what they're going to see change, um, just because things are so well entrenched, given the fact that the same person has been in charge for so long. So you don't think that anybody that is contesting Gulati right now has a chance to beat him? Oh, I think. Plenty of people have a chance to beat them. I think I just don't think that any of them are necessarily thinking about what they do if they beat him or when they beat him. Um, you know, right now we're just sort of in that. You know, you know, you don't want to make a, a U.S. presidency equivalency, but you're sort of in that that stage where people are trying to push themselves forward with charismatic agendas and and all the right buzzwords and everything. But you know, the, the, by the same token, um, none of the people who they're campaigning to on Twitter actually vote in this thing. So right now it's just a sort of winning, in the, winning of the hearts and minds and trying to put together some, some grassroots support, but obviously none of that will necessarily translate to votes. So I don't think anyone necessarily is thinking yet beyond this sort of grandiose blueprint idea that we're seeing from you know, people announcing today or even last week. Um, I don't think any of them necessarily thought about what comes next or, or really have any sense of what the job involves. Uh, I don't think I've seen a cogent explanation of what a U.S. soccer president does other than simply oversee a bunch of people and, and report to a board of directors. I, I, I'm not sure anyone's really understanding yet what what the scope of the job involves. So right now it's just about trying to win people over, win an election, and then uh, as far as where it goes from there, I have no idea. James, to shift topic slightly, one of the complications of covering soccer in America is, is striking a balance between uh, you know the Premier League and the world game and then kind of the local game. Um, how do you guys at, at ESPN.com approach covering women's soccer, for instance, you know, the NWSL, the women's national team? And sometimes that's also true for MLS. Um, you're, you're kind of covering things that maybe don't get the same kind of traffic, but you're sort of expected to devote resources to them. Do you feel a responsibility to cover those things? And, and what's sort of your solution to that? Uh, well, me personally, not speaking for my, my company necessarily, you know, you know we, we do have an obligation to cover everything. I mean, we're the sort of third biggest um, soccer site in the world in terms of traffic. 
certainly the biggest English language site right now. Um, so we do have an obligation to try and cover it all. As far as things like the NWSL, the U.S. Women's National Team, you know, uh, the uh, colleagues at ESPNW um, have a great handle on that, and they, they lead our coverage there. As far as Major League Soccer is concerned, I mean, we, we try and balance the big stories, giving people the basic information, but then also trying to find those stories that, you know, might not seem so obvious, but will resonate on a sort of personal, emotional level. And, and the same is true of covering any league in this in, in the sport. It's um, It's about making sure that you have your bare bones skeletal coverage, you know, who, who did what, where they are in the table, you know, those kind of big stories. And then also making sure that you are giving the broadest possible coverage to the stories that people might be interested in. Um, obviously, over the past couple of years, we've, we've sort of had to shrink coverage in certain areas and, and focus more attention where people clearly are interested. But you still, you know, as where we are in this, in this space, we have to try and cover it all. And it's frequently why I get no sleep. <laughs> You know, there's just constantly something to be done. Um, you know, there's a breaking story overnight in Australia. Um, you know, there's Patrice Evra kicking a fan on a pretty dull Europa League Thursday that suddenly sends into high gear. Um, you know, we have to be ready for it all. The challenge is obviously making sure that we balance what we're capable of as people because <laughs> we just can't do it all. Um, and, you know, that's where you get some of those harder conversations about you know, a story you really feel passionate about, but you have to sort of let it go because, you know, Jose, Jose Mourinho said a thing, um, you know, and ultimately we, we let our readers inform us what they're interested in and, and play to the numbers a lot. But, you know, there's still plenty of scope to have fun and, and cover creative stories that, you know, go, go beyond the usual tier of coverage that people expect. When you guys run stories about the MLS, uh, do you find that the traffic is... Uh, lower than a story that you would write about Europe's uh, European soccer, um, and do you feel the <laughs> obligation to write about the MLS even if these traffic numbers are not what you want them to be? Wow, these questions have took a hard turn. Um, Sorry, I'm, I'm going to try and give a diplomatic answer here and say that you know we we do want to cover um, MLS as as it, as any other league, whether you have a personal opinion about quality of the league or the quality of people in charge of the league, um, it is still uh, sort of just uh, a big event in this country, and, and we do try and cover it to the best of our abilities. Obviously, there are times when um, there might be certain inferences and suggestions about coverage that we have to sort of push back on, um, but it certainly, you know, it is a challenge. And like I said, we, we try and let our readers inform us what they're most interested in, and if there are 10 stories about many nights that historically do well you know those those 10 stories get get the um the positioning that they need to get um it's it's hard to balance it all and the fact that we are you know human and we are in charge we, we try and cover the broadest possible swath of of uh content but you know those decisions do get tough i will say that we do try our best but sometimes it feels like your best is never good enough so now all of a sudden, rather than covering the lead-up to a World Cup, um, the U.S. going to an eight-straight World Cup, as we'd all expected, instead you're having to cover the search for a new head coach, uh, possibly the hire of a technical director, if that's the way they go, and the suddenly contested and highly charged election for a U.S. soccer president. So instead of covering actual soccer, you find yourself covering kind of an administrative battle and a, and a bunch of hiring processes. How do you sort of shift from one to the other? You try you try to cover those those more administrative things on a purely news level. Um, you know you you want to be careful that you're not 
straying too far into editorial with that stuff. Um, but then, obviously, we certainly trust you know our, our experts who have been covering the U.S. national team for a long time, guys like Jeff Carlisle, for example. Um, we, we trust them to, to steer us in terms of the right tone of analysis. But most of that coverage does really take care of itself. I mean, you're tracking people who've said something in an open forum. You're tracking a one-on-one interview with somebody. Um, and while those things don't exactly, you know, grab the attention the way, you know, losing in Trinidad and Tobago might, um, you know, the, we, we've certainly seen from our traffic reports that the interest is there. I mean, people will, honestly, you could you could write the most mundane story about U.S. soccer and people will read it because it is in that sort of, it feels like it's in that sort of, you know, crossroads moment where it could go, um, it could continue to go horribly wrong. They could mismanage the next generation of talent, you know, depending on who you see that being, or they could hire, you know, a, a superstar manager that everybody loves who, who will come in and say all the right things. So, you know, you let, you let the news dictate that coverage um, first and foremost, and then you back it up with a, as cogent and as smart analysis as possible. Um, but for me personally, it's very easy because you just let, you know, you let these candidates say what they need to say, you present it, and then you move on and wait for the next guy. Um, but obviously, you know, the manager search is a, a big story. Um, and given the fact that there's an election in February, I think we'll have a few months before we have to really worry about who the identity of that person is and how to cover them. Uh, what do you think about hiring a technical director for U.S. soccer? Do you think it's needed? A Jurgen was it before? Right now, it seems that Tom Ramos is taking it after being the youth technical director. Um, we have a women's technical director, April Heinrichs. Do you think the men need the same? I do. I mean, I think when you're looking at a, an institution like U.S. Soccer, you know, they've had the same old names in place for so long. I mean, when Bruce Arena came back, he was very much a product of this this um, infrastructure. So he understood it very well and presumably could, could work with it. But I do think technical directors are important. I think, you know, especially at the club level, you see so many more teams adopting a director of football model because the job is so complex. You can't possibly have enough hours in the day to handle tactics, handle coaching, to then handle the broader philosophical picture of what sort of team you want to put forward and how you want that style to translate from level to level throughout the youth system. And then also to, to be actively in charge of the scouting process and, and the nurturing of, of raw talent and then figuring out how to bring in, you know, areas of the country and areas of the population that haven't necessarily been given a fair look over the years, given the way the structure exists. It's too much for one person. And we saw that with Klinsman. He couldn't do it all. Um, and he certainly couldn't necessarily get the right people in the right places in order to to have the best possible handle on it all. So I do think it's important. You need to, you know, a, a good manager will delegate rather than being somebody who is in charge of everything and in control of everything. They will, they will know how to put the right people in those places and then benefit from their expertise rather than just trying to install their friend, their longtime associate, you know, somebody they've worked for in the past who is naturally going to defer to them. So I think, you know, hopefully the next iteration of U.S. soccer sees an accountability between the different branches. I hope you have a manager who is focused on extracting the most from the talent available. You have a technical director who works to put a reasonable standard of play and a reasonable degree of excellence into the into the player pool. And then you have administration who basically lets them get on with it and is, is focused on the business side. I think what we've had so far is is everything has been too monolithic um, and they need to sort of break out from that and, and uh, you know, share the power around instead of having it concentrated in one or two people. 
what's the role and what are the failures of the American soccer media in, in that? I mean, should we, and, and I certainly include myself in this, should we have informed our readers and our viewers better about what was going on within American soccer and, and should we have held them to account better? You know, I think plenty of the soccer media have been correctly critical and, and been appropriate in that. But the problem we have, as I think any any journalist who's covering any beat, you know, there's, there's a degree of accountability, but there's also a degree of mutual partnership. Um, that's not to say that you have, you know, the, the, the manager dictating how people write about him, but you certainly, you know, unfortunately you have this, this sort of nasty trade-off between, you know, getting the, the availability and the access that you need to do your job versus trying to do your job effectively. And, you know, the best journalist out there in any industry and sort of covering any beat will we'll manage to, to balance the two in a way that doesn't sell either of them out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you, you know, you see newer journalists come through and they are quite willing to sort of spout a proverbial party line and then they get more and more influence and they get more and more access. Um, so to answer your, your question, uh, you know, we could certainly have been harder, and there the, were the big articles that came out in the last couple of World Cup cycles that really tried to lay bare a lot of grievances within the, the organization and, and also try and do it in a well-sourced fashion. But unfortunately, it all comes back to, you know, if you're unable to stand it up, if you're unable to source it accurately, and, and in a way that doesn't feel like you're sort of putting one opinion above the rest and, and promoting that over, you know, what is the actual story, it is difficult. Um, but honestly, when you read, you know, SI, you know, when Fox had coverage anyway, or, or yes, Sam's coverage of the U.S. National Ouch. League. You know, it's a shot. Well, it's true. It's, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, but that's the, that's the route they've gone. Um, but when you would look in the aftermath of a U.S. defeat or, or a disappointing result, um, you know, I think across the board, people were uniformly critical. The question was maybe some of the follow-up wasn't as, as uh, aggressive, perhaps. Um, and, you know, small victories were sort of made to be things that they weren't for U.S. soccer. You know, like, oh, yeah, they, you know, they won the Gold Cup. And it's like, yeah, they did. But, you know, was it really that impressive, for example? Um, so things like that, I think, you know, they could have been better. But, uh, again, like, it's it's easy to look back in hindsight and say that we, you know, as a, as a media niche could have done things better or done things differently. But, you know, when you're in the sort of thick of game coverage, um, you, you kind of go where the story takes you and, and try not to impose too much of your own feelings on it. Um, so, I mean, it's, I think, uh, you know, Klinsman, I think, would certainly feel like he got the brunt of it. Bruce Arena, maybe not. Um, right. So, James, we've managed to get about 20 minutes into this thing without talking about Christian Pulisic. Let's talk about Christian Pulisic. Has he been a game changer to... American sports media, do you think, or is it, or is he about to become one? You know, missed World Cup notwithstanding. Well, the the missed World Cup only fuels the narrative for the twenty twenty two, and even the interim between twenty eighteen and twenty twenty two. You know, he has been a game changer in that. You know, he is what Jurgen Klinsmann prophesized. Um, he's the guy who you know grew up in this country, moved away at an early age, and worked his ass off to to get to where he is, and he's making. Most of it. He's, I mean, he's he was Dortmund's best player against Bayern on Saturday by a mile, um, and they really benefited from him. It's just a shame they couldn't match up to his level, which is so surreal to say, considering he's a, from Hershey, Pennsylvania. Um, but I think he is a game changer in that he's he's um, 
coming into his own at a time when, you know, U.S. soccer's at a crossroads. It needs that new player. So he fits perfectly in the timing of, you know, who's that next guy who's going to be on the Wheaties box and, you know, on Good Morning America and everything else. Um, and he, you know, so far hasn't put a foot wrong. So until he does that, you know, the media as a whole will continue to sort of build him up and build him up until he, you know, puts a foot wrong and then we'll take great pleasure in smashing it down, which is, <laughs> you know, how this, how this game works, really. I mean. Uh, last question. Um, the future of sport, of soccer writing, really, in America, um, to me, as a student and as a journalism major, is kind of on a rocky boat. I see a guy like Will Parchman, who I respect, I read, and I really like, especially when he writes about the youth players in America, um, has decided to quit his job, basically, to quit being a soccer writer um, and go into another field because he felt that he wasn't making enough money in the field to support his family, which is a perfectly fine decision on his part, and I respect him for it. But what does that mean when a, talent, a talented writer like him leaves the industry? And what is the future for the industry um, if a guy like that can't even survive? You know, I think it goes one of two ways. I mean, I don't think Will, if we're going to talk about him in particular, I don't think he's alone in, in going disillusioned with, with the industry he was working in and so passionate about. And, you know, this sort of thing unfortunately happens all the time. You find guys that, you know, when you, when you have to prioritize real-world um, pressure and real-world stress over, you know, your passion, you know, you, you do have to make those kind of tough decisions. And it's sad to see guys like him exit that, that sphere and, and to stop, you know, putting the, the writing out there and to stop doing the, the kind of reporting he was doing. Um, journalistic, as, as far as an industry-wide failure, I think there are still plenty of opportunities for people to come up into sports writing, soccer journalism, what have you. And there are certainly, while there aren't so many major media outlets left these days to sort of finance that, I think people are able to, you know, stand their ground. It's just an, an unfortunate consequence. I mean, for example, I had to turn my back on, on books when books were no longer economically viable for seemingly anyone. Um, you know, I had three good jobs in a row in publishing. I really felt like I was on my way somewhere, and then the bottom fell out. Um, so I do think there are always opportunities, but, you know, Will, to, to, to mention him in particular, um, you know, he made the right choice for himself in that moment. I don't think that that necessarily um, reflects too badly on, on the rest of the industry because the, there will always be opportunities there. Um, but, you know, the, the economic pressure is very real, especially in 2017 and you know, I, I've seen ESPN go through three or four rounds of layoffs since they started in 2011, 2012. Um, so that that pressure is always there. Um, but my, my hope for Will, especially, is that he can he can find time to write on the side and still contribute his opinion because you know those opinions are very much welcome and, and necessary. And we need more outsider voices just in in soccer media in general. We need people to constantly be questioning things and uh, you know holding all of us accountable. Um, ESPN included, you know, when, when the, the need is there. What a happy note to end on, James. <laughs> well, you guys asked the question, and I, sort of, <laughs> I have to answer them in the order they give it. Um, but it's true. Yeah. Happy note. It's Monday. We really appreciate <laughs> your time and thoughts, James. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, James. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure. What did you think of that, Marco? Good chat, huh? I thought he was extremely open. Uh, I was very surprised. I mean, he started talking about ESPN layoffs at the end. I was surprised he went there. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a fact of life over there. It's a fact in the industry, and I, I don't think that's something um, to, to talk about lightly, but it is something you have to be realistic about, I think, when you work in this in this business. He also took a shot at Fox, which <laughs> I'm sure ESPN PR loves, and I'm not surprised by that either. We didn't really talk about Fox having the World Cup and ESPN not having it, but he also went into ESPN's coverage in the World Cup and saying that even though the U.S. is not there, they're still going to have a lot of coverage there, and it, it's not that big of a deal. No, I mean, having been through this process a few times, funnily enough, once with ESPN and once with Fox when I was working in those two places, um, you know, you make your plans for the World Cup a long time out. Um, so they may have had everything in place before the U.S. failed to qualify, and now they're just kind of having to adjust. But I also know that covering the World Cup for a rights holder and covering it for a non-rights holder is really different because when you're a rights holder, you know, you're not in the promotion game exactly, but you are sort of trying to um, support the programming on your network. You're, you're trying to sort of get people interested, even if you're not sort of doing it as a, as a PR person. Um, so to then not have the rights is kind of liberating in that you don't have to worry exactly what's going to be on TV and just write about whatever you want. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. He said it's going to be a lot more freedom to be able to do other things than promote the U.S. soccer for ESPN's ratings, basically. But what, what did you think, uh, I mean, as a soccer writer yourself, um, what he said about the future of sports soccer writing uh, or sports writing, sport, soccer writing in general? Um, I mean, he we talked about Parchman, but he didn't really give uh, a solution. But I don't think they're really, I don't think anybody has a solution. Soccer's in sort of a funny spot because it's, been a niche sport for so long and now it's kind of breaking out of that so soccer is one of the few parts of the sports writing business that has seen growth in the last few years i mean we have fewer baseball writers than we used to we have fewer football writers than we used to but the number of soccer writers has ticked up even during this time of contraction in the industry so it's in this weird spot but it certainly doesn't help when the u.s doesn't go because there's a lot of outlets that aren't that serious about soccer but when there's a world cup they think, oh, people are going to read this. We should probably send somebody. What are we going to do? So that's a lot of jobs and a lot of opportunities that are not going to be there next year. I think the word you're looking for right there was newspapers. <laughs> I mean, is New York Times, is uh, the L.A. Times, uh, is the Washington Post, are they going to send their writers to the World Cup? I suspect they will. But in the past, you might have had a, you might have had a writer from the Miami Herald as well and the Seattle okay. Post-Intelligence or the Seattle Times or whatever. So I think those people you're probably not going to see at the World Cup this time around. Now it's time for our Rick Smith's Fun Fact. Just as a reminder, in case you've somehow never heard of this segment, which is unimaginable at this point, Smith was a longtime NBA player and a one-time All-Star with the Indiana Pacers. The Duncan Dutchman is also Marist's most famous sporting alumnus, so we've adopted him as our mascot. So here's this episode's fact. After his basketball career ended... Smiths became a competitive dirt biker. He reached the highest amateur class, in spite of the fact he weighs 300 pounds, in a sport that favors light riders, and that his 7'4 frame means he can't stand up on his bike because he can't reach the handlebars. Now it's time to end. Our producer today was Chris Hupper. Our editors were Dom Musillo and Matt Jutkowitz. Our researcher was Maria Kiros. From my co-host Marco Schaden, I'm Leander Sharlockens. Thanks for listening to School of Sports.